Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. Racism in our country has been more than challenging for longer than we've been a nation. There are systemic issues in our culture and, as you'll hear today, deep-seated biases and prejudices held by all people. Here's First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page with the sermon, Hope for Change. All right, well, hello again, everyone, and I do hope that you had a great fun time celebrating July 4th. You know, every time July 4th rolls around, I tend to think of my dad, and I think it's because my dad was such a patriot, and his patriotism really rubbed off on me and my brother. My dad was such a patriot that at 17 years old, he quit high school to join the Marine Corps in order to fight in World War II. Now, one of the battles that he spoke of very frequently was the Battle of Okinawa. Now, if you don't know, Okinawa was one of the fiercest battles in the entire Second World War. 12,000 Americans died on that island. And more tragically, 110,000 Japanese soldiers were also killed. Perhaps even more horrific than that, though, was that 100,000 Okinawan civilians also perished. All in all, about a quarter of a million people died on that island in probably less than a two-month period. Now, sadly, in that battle, my father wounded and killed a lot of Japanese and Okinawan people. And I'd like to tell you that they were all soldiers, but I'm afraid to say they weren't. But now, fast forward 43 years, it's 1988, and I bring this girl home from seminary to meet my parents because I want to marry her. But here's the thing, even though she's full-blooded American, ethnically speaking, she is 100% Okinawan. How is this meeting going to go between my dad and my fiance? Well, today, by way of the scriptures and my own personal journey, I want to talk to you about hope. The great hope that we can have in the midst of all this social turmoil. The hope to set to rights one of the biggest things that has plagued our nation for so long. Now, I'm going to get back to that story about my dad in a little while, but for now, I want to look at two other ethnicities that also had some pretty strong heat between them, the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, I want to do this through a very brief episode in the Gospel of Luke, and it takes place at a time when Jesus is is going to travel from Galilee, which is in northern Palestine, down through Samaria to Jerusalem. And this is what happens along the way. It's in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. When the time was coming near for Jesus to be taken up, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He sent some messengers ahead of him who went into a town in Samaria to make everything ready for him. But the people there would not welcome him because he was set on going to Jerusalem. When James and John, followers of Jesus, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy those people? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. Now, I'd appreciate what's going on here in this scenario. Let me give you a little history, a little background. You know, the general attitude between these two groups was one of long-lasting hostility. Samaritans were known to harass Jewish pilgrims. They went from the north down into Jerusalem along the way, and sometimes the harassment occasionally turned to violence and murder. Samaritans were also known to uh, defile, to try to defile the temple. They took human bones and they scattered them throughout the temple in order to defile it. Now, for the Jew, this just wasn't just an act of desecration. It was absolute blasphemy. 
Now, the crazy thing about this is that this mutual hatred and prejudice between these two didn't just start during the time of Jesus. It had been going on for 750 years. You see, in the, in the year 720 B.C. or thereabouts, the Assyrians came in and conquered northern Israel. And what they did is they took some Israelites and they moved them in exile to, Assy to Assyria. But what they also did is took some of their own people and they put them in Israel to intermingle and intermarry with the, Israel, the Israelites. Now this intermingling of people led to a, a creation of a kind of quasi-Judaism. And for those who are pure Israelites, any form of corrupted Judaism was not just wrong, it was detestable. So you can see why James and John reacted the way they did. They weren't just speaking from this singular incident at the moment. Their words came out of 750 years of fomenting history. How in the world, I got to ask this, how in the world do you call down and ask to destroy a town, to burn people alive, when you have walked with the Prince of Peace for so long? The one who has said, you know, love your enemy, bless those who hate you, Pray for those who persecute you. So how do you then call out for the incineration of human beings? It reminds me of a saying that I recently heard, Jesus may be in your heart, but history and culture are in your bones. And this is what I see here in this story. Jesus' teaching was indeed in their heart, but centuries of prejudice was in their bones, and it showed up in that call for violence towards people whom God loved. Now the point is, just because we too follow Jesus and give our lives to him, doesn't mean that some, some of our own prejudices died an instant death. What kind of biases and prejudices from our culture may still be alive in our bones? Now what's interesting here is that Jesus, though a recipient of prejudice in this village, Surprisingly, he doesn't get ticked off at the Samaritans. He gets ticked off at his apostles. The scriptures say in verse 56, Jesus turned and rebuked them. The word rebuke here is a very strong reprimand. After this rebuke, I imagine James and John looking at each other with a bit of surprise in their eyes going, what in the world do we say that was so wrong? You see, in their culture, that kind of language made perfect sense, and it made sense for 750 years. Now, I should also point something out that's important here. I know Jesus doesn't say it directly, but despite being shunned and rejected, his love for the Samaritans is still very robust. We know this because after this incident, he uses a Samaritan as a hero figure in one of the parables he told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Then later on in Luke chapter 17, he heals a Samaritan of leprosy. And then after his resurrection, he, he tells and directs his apostles to win over, not burn up, but win over the people of Samaria to the gospel of Jesus. In Acts 1.8, it reads like this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea. Skip over Samaria and go to the rest of the world. No, he doesn't say that. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, and, in, and unto the ends of the earth. And I can assure you that the word Samaria there is not a throwaway line. See, Jesus is absolutely resolute about what he wants to see happen with the Samaritan people. 
And I see his rebuke of the disciples, his telling of that parable, the healing of that leper, and the giving of this command to reach the Samaritans as a reflection of the urgency. And I want us to understand that the urgency that he has to heal all these divisions and anger that has stood for so long. You know, in his famous speech back in 1963 in front of the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King uttered these words. We have come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. That this is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy. I love that quote. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus felt the same way. That is, that he wanted his disciples to understand the fierce urgency of now, the urgency of ending 750 years of prejudice and racism between these people groups. Now, here's where I want to get real with all of you. The way towards healing and wholeness about any issue that ails us personally or communally or socially is always going to be through the truth. So in hopes of freeing up all of us to speak the truths of our own heart with these kinds of issues, I'm going to speak the truth of my own journey. Now, please understand my heart as I tell these stories. I don't mean to insult or, or offend anyone. I've told my story to many of our brothers and sisters, uh, people of color in our church. I've told, shared it with my wife, and they've all given me the green light to share these things. Okay? I just wanted to make sure that we were good to go. But those of you who have never heard these stories, I'm asking in advance for a lot of grace. So here it goes. As many of you know, I grew up in Jersey, and I lived in a very blue-collar white neighborhood. And right next to that white neighborhood was a very blue-collar black neighborhood. And let me tell you, our neighborhoods rarely, if ever, interacted. See, they had their ball fields, and we had ours. They had their playgrounds, and we had ours. They had their courts, and we had ours. You get the picture. But we had to go through that neighborhood to get to town, where the, where the pizzeria was, or where the banks were, where the train station was. So this first incident takes place in the late 60s. Now, many of you know that the, at that time, racial tensions were very high. I'm about eight, nine years old, and I'm driving in the back seat of my dad's car, and we're going through that section of town, or excuse me, through that neighborhood towards town. And as we're driving there, I look up, and I see on the, on the front porch of a house many children playing, kids around my age. And I look over at them, and with the same arrogance as James and John, I say with complete ease to my father, Hey, Dad, look at all those N-words. Yeah, I said that to my father. And within a flash, my father, while still driving, reaches into that back seat and he backhands me a pretty hard slap. And he says to me through grit teeth, I don't ever want to hear that word come out of your mouth again. I think this was my dad's old school version of rebuke. Now, I didn't use that word again in front of him, but that didn't mean my attitude towards the black community changed. Fast forward a couple of years, now I'm around 10, 11 years old, and I'm on my bike, and I'm going through that neighborhood again to town. And in the corner of my eye, I see this African-American boy jump out of the bushes. He's around 13, 14 years old. I've seen him before. He jumps out of the bushes, and he has a rifle in his hand. He raises it up and fires it and shoots me right in the back. Now, fortunately, this was a pellet gun. It's the kind of gun that we would use to, to kill small animals when we go hunting. Now understand this, you know, pellets will never kill a person. 
But because they're solid lead balls, about three or four times the size of a BB from a BB gun, they hurt like crazy. And as I flew away on my bike, full of fear and pain, I could feel that my shoulder blade was bleeding and a large welt was beginning to form on my back. Now flash forward a few more years, I'm 14 years old and I'm going to a fully integrated school at this point. I played halfback on our freshman football team. And the other halfback was a guy named Tommy. Tommy was African American. Now oddly enough, Tommy and I soon become very good friends. We not only block for each other and cheer each other on, we give each other advice about girls, we share each other about music. To this day, I still listen to a couple of groups that he first introduced me to, the Ohio Players and Earth, Wind and Fire. But as great as our friendship was throughout the years, I still did not repaint my narrative of black people based on how great he was. It remained painted by my past, just like James and John. So now at 20 year, 21 years of age, I become a Christian. And at 24, I become a missionary to Asia. And I learn for the first time of what it's like to live as a minority. And I begin to see and experience the world in a vastly different manner. And it really begins to change my soul in a drastic manner. So now fast forward from that. I'm 26 years old. I'm home from Asia. I'm walking down the streets of New York City. I'm on 8th Avenue heading back to the train station. And, and there's a, there's a middle-aged African-American man sitting on a chair just outside of Bodega, which is like a small store. And he sees me walking down the, the, the sidewalk there and he yells out, somebody better get his white tail across the street. Now, being the kind of guy that's like, nobody's going to tell me where I can walk, I ignored him. And when he saw that I ignored him, he yelled it out even louder and angrier a second time. And then when he saw when I still didn't get the hint, he opens up his jacket, he reaches in and he pulls out a gun. But this time, it's not a pellet gun. And man, I take off across that, that street like Usain Bolt. But I tell that story for two reasons. One, to let you know that I know what it's like, at least, at least a little bit, to feel threatened simply because of the color of my skin. But more importantly, I tell that story to show you that despite such an incident, I didn't use it as an excuse to repaint that black community based simply on this one man's actions. Afterward, I realized just how much Jesus Christ changed my racist heart. And that change wasn't legislated into me. It wasn't forced into me. It was transformed into me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that said, there was still some old culture left in my bones. For example, I started dating that Okinawan girl who is now my wife. And I remember sharing to her about my family, and I told her about my dad fighting in World War II, and I said to her, without any modicum of concern, that he fought against, and I'm not going to use the word, I'm going to spell it for you, he fought against the J-A-P-S. Yeah, that's right, I actually used that term to a Japanese woman whom I adored. And I said it that way because that's the words my culture used when, where I grew up to refer to people from Japan. And my girlfriend, who stood there with an absolute stunned look on her face, quickly recovered, and with all the gentleness and graciousness she could muster in the moment, <laughs> told me straight up, that word is extremely offensive. Never use it again. And I never did. So you can see that, like James and John, I had Jesus in my heart, but old culture was still in my bones. And it hurt someone that I loved very deeply. Now, here's where things start to get a little interesting. 
having experienced all these things with all these things with people who are different uh, color than I am, I began to see and experience prejudice from those who looked like me. For example, uh, a few years later, I'm 28 years old, I'm in seminary, and I finally married that Okinawan girl, and we started to attend a church. We go to church, and she is the only non-white face in a, in a whole service of about 400 people. And of course, like every church, there was greeting time. So my wife quickly turns around to the man next to her and says, hi, my name is Dine. I'm from Hawaii, how are you? And uh, he turns and he looks at her and he says slowly and with a smile, Hi, my name is Mark. I am from Michigan. Do you know where Michigan is? And then my, my, my wife just was kind of startled and she says to him really quickly, Well, yes, of course I know where Michigan is. Now, Mr. Michigan, who still can't grasp that a full-blooded American might actually include someone who looks like my wife, astonishingly says to her, real slowly again, wow, you speak English very well. And now, of course, when he says hi to me, he, he talks regular, like a normal guy, and for some reason he doesn't think I could be a foreigner. Why not? What's going on here? Let me drill down to this kind of exchange for a second. Look, today I know that very few of us are Jim Crow racists, but sometimes, there are some, some subconscious uh, implicit biases that we carry around that eventually leak out and end up insert, insulting and hurting people. To talk to this guy at church there, he seems the kind of person who would never think of being mean or inappropriate to any person, much less a person of color. In fact, I bet you if you asked him in his heart, he thought he was, was really complimenting my wife. And it's this kind of subconscious bias that can really hurt people. In this man's subconscious version of reality, in other words, in his bones, my wife's particular features could not fit into that category of American by birth. She just had to be a foreigner. Now, because it's subconscious, this is really hard to correct. And we can throw all kinds of policy and legislation at it. But that kind of thing only comes out with deep, honest prayer and reflection. And this is where some verses out of Psalm 139 could really help us out with this. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 say this. God, examine me, know my heart, test me, and know my troubling thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, Lord, come and show me what I cannot see in myself. In fact, show me what I don't want to see in myself and I want to know, I really want to know if there's any hurtful way in me. And if there is, Lord, change it to reflect your highest ideals right here, right now in my life. Can you imagine the societal change that could happen if we Christians prayed this prayer often? Reality is, folks, we can't fix what we don't face. We can't overcome what we overlook. So we have to look, and we have to look honestly, deeply, prayerfully, soulfully at the truth, and we need to do it often. Now back to my journey. Okay, flash forward a bunch of years again. My wife, I have two small kids, and we're driving across western Pennsylvania, and we decided to stop in this little small mountain town to have some lunch. 
Now, this place looked like something out of a Norman Rockwell painting. You know, have these big high church steeples, old school architecture. It was really a throwback to another time. It was a really a quaint place. So we go in this small little luncheonette, and there's about six or seven people sitting in chairs there. And my family and I walk in, and all of them, they all of them turn around and look at us. And they eye my wife up and down, and they look at her with disdain, with one of those, what are you doing here kind of looks. Now, it's uncomfortable, to say the least, but we sit down anyway, because like I said before, nobody's going to tell me where I can sit, stand, or eat lunch. So we sit down anyway. But here's the thing. A good chunk of time passes. No waitress. So I see her, and I try to get her attention. Miss, miss, can we have a, can we have a menu? Miss, can we have some water? Miss, we'd like to order. Miss. I don't know how long we sat there. She wouldn't even look at us. It was right then I get a chill down my spine and I say to my wife and my kids, we are out of here. So my wife and I, trying to stay calm for the sake of our kids, we get in our car and we fly out of town. That incident created so much hurt, so much anger, so much fear in me. Now I know no one burned a cross, no one put a white sheet over their head, and no one spewed some crude racial epithet. They didn't need to. Their demeanor and their actions or lack of actions said it all. The message was clear. Our kind was not welcome there. Now, I don't mean to be overly, overly dramatic, but it kind of gave me a little glimpse of what people of color might experience often in our modern American culture. It's shocking. It's hard to believe that it still goes on, but it is oh so real. Now, I'm not saying the majority of Americans are like this. 99% of the people my wife interacted with on the mainland were respectful, were re they were loving, they were kind. So I'm not here to paint with a broad brush. But I just want you to know that this is still a reality in our great country. Not 100 years ago, but today. In fact, my daughter, who looks a lot like my wife, told me just the other day as I was sharing these stories with her that she still, even today, she still gets people when they talked to her, asking her, so what was it like for you when you moved to our country? Yeah, they say that to my daughter, who was born here. And that's not in 1820, that's in 2020. So yes, the spirit of James and John is alive and well and still in our American bones. Now, if I can be honest with you as your brother, I just want to bring up one last thing before we get into some practical things of how we can be part of the change. Over the past few weeks, I've been sent videos, sent articles, sent podcasts, and I've been given statistics. Statistics on black-on-black -black crime, fatherlessness in the black community, high rates of violence, and other serious crimes. Let me say one quick thing about this. Statistically speaking, these things are absolutely true. But I ask you, honestly, think about this. When you bring up those things, do you bring them up because you lament such statistics? Do you bring them up because you want to help change those statistics? Or is it a means to deflect? To deflect the discomfort that our culture could still possible, is still possible of being so racist? Is that why we bring this up? Secondly, as a Christian, what do these statistics mean to us as a people of God? Do they mean that black people have made their own mess and now they're responsible to fix that mess? Is that what we're trying to say? You know, I've often had the privilege as a, as, as a pastor to help couples out who go through some very, very deep struggles in their marriages. And when I counsel them, counsel these people who've made a total mess of their lives, 
I don't say to them, look, I don't know what you want from me. You're the guys who created these problems. What in the world do you want from me? I didn't make your problem. Now, would you want a pastor to say that if you were going through troubling times? Would you want a pastor to say that to an addict or somebody else who's struggling in their life? Why not? You know, as a pastor, I may have nothing to do with other people's problems, but I have a God-ordained part to play in their solutions. And that call to be part of the solution, even though personally you didn't create the problem, is not only the calling of pastors, but for every Christian who follows Jesus Christ. Because as we know in Scripture, it makes it very clear, we are our brother's keeper. We are to love our neighbor, whatever the statistics of that neighbor may be. So again, I may not have been one who caused the problem, but as a man of God, I'm part of the solution. So, what can help each one of us become part of the solution? Man, there's a million things you can talk about. I only have time for two. First one is this. Make an effort to educate yourself and learn the history of racial struggle for Americans who are not like you. I've been doing this over the past few weeks, and it's been so enriching. Um, and, and, and I know people have talked to me and said, Steve, why do you want us to keep looking back and bringing up the past? You're just keeping alive old wounds. Let's move on already. You see, folks, we cannot be done with the past until we truly know and understand the past. Over the past month, I've asked people from our very community questions like this. Do you know what Juneteenth is? Do you know what the Tulsa Massacre is? Do you know about the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment? I asked him something that I just learned about recently. Do you know what 40 acres and a mule is? And 99% of the people I ask in our community, they say they have no idea about these events. Events that are crucial to our American history. See, the point is, folks, is how do we move beyond the past if we don't truly understand the past? And let's be clear, you know, black history is American history. It's not like there's American history and then there's black history. There's American history and there's Hawaiian history or Asian history or, or Native American history. It's just American history. It's all our history. And if they've been a part of our country, then their journey in this country must be understood or we are all the lesser for it. Now, can I admit something really embarrassing here? I never even heard of Japanese internment camps until I met my wife when I was 27 years old. I already had a college degree. I was halfway through grad school, and I never heard of it. It wasn't in my history books. It wasn't in my educational process, and neither was Juneteenth, and neither was a Trail of Tears, and neither was 40 Acres and a Mule, none of this stuff. That all these important incidences that helped shape our country, my country, your country. So I ask you, and this is really important, how do we know if we've made things right if we don't really know what actually went wrong. Remember, ignorance always shortens our reach for God. It stunts our impact for his kingdom. If you can watch one video that can help educate you, I encourage you to watch one video on YouTube. It's called Race in America. It's only about 18 minutes long, Race in America, and it's about a guy who created VeggieTales. His name is his Phil Vischer. Super helpful and informative. So please, try to learn and understand as much as you can. That's the first thing. Second thing, and I'll finish with this. Live in hope. 
I know it's really easy to be cynical today, but the reality is so long as Jesus is Lord and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we always, we always have hope for change. And this is where I can finally finish that story about my dad. As I said, he fought on the island of Okinawa, and in that battle he killed many people, some of whom he suspects were actually civilians. Now, despite all that, when he met my fiance, he so joyfully embraced her and joyfully embraced this woman whose grandparents, all of them, came from that very island. See, the thing is this. I cannot imagine in April of 1945, as my father fought and killed on that island, that he could have possibly imagined this kind of outcome for his own family. We went from a family who participated in the killing of Okinawans to creating an entirely new family with them. And that's a beautiful story. And that's something like this also happened with the apostles that we've talked about in Luke 9. About four or five years after that incident in Luke 9, we see in Acts 8 the dramatic change in the hearts of these disciples. It says this in verses 14 through 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John, remember John, there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Peter and John laid hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now think about this. Just a few years ago, they're calling down for the destruction. They're calling for the burning of these people. And now they want the Samaritans to experience the fullness of the Spirit of God. 750 years of prejudice completely transformed in their hearts in a very few short years. Now, as you heard last week from Pastor Tim, Peter had some learning to do about Gentiles, but that's another story. But about the Samaritans, things drastically changed. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters, if Peter and John and the rest could transform 750 years of prejudice in such a short time, why can't we? I mean, think about it. Think about this. Why not us? Why not now? Folks, we can try to legislate a new soul, but you know that's not going to happen. But that's exactly what our situation in our society needs today, a new, new soul, a new spiritual change. So I ask you as we finish up, what is your part? What is your part to bring about this change? Because God's desiring this change in America, but what is your part to play? For us Christians, I pray that we find that Jesus is not only in our hearts, but he's in our bones. Because when that happens, this world will never be the same again. Please join me in prayer. Just bow our heads together here. Lord, for those of us who have suffered the pain of a thousand cuts of prejudice over the years, black, brown, white, whomever, Lord, I pray your gracious hand will begin to bring healing in this very moment. Help us, Lord, to let go of pain, let go of hurt and resentments that keep us trapped by the words and the actions of others. Set us free in the power of your Spirit to be agents of healing, agents of change in our world. May we be granted the privilege to be the generation that finally puts an end to all this pain and division. Give us the courage and perseverance to do what it takes to do justice, to actively and intentionally bring healing and bring peace and bring unity to our society. Lord, we confess without you we can do nothing, so we say, Holy Spirit, come, 
fill us. And we pray all these things in your gracious and mighty name. Amen. And remember that you can join a digital discussion group by hitting that button there in the chat section of your computer. It's a great time to meet and talk about other people, especially with a sermon that's kind of loaded like that. Now, normally I would give a blessing at the end of a service, but this week what we want to do is have you experience a blessing, a blessing from 50 countries. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we are given this very powerful, hope-filled vision of the world that God intends. And it reads like this. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes, and they held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on a throne, and to the Lamb. You see, folks, we Christians are to model this, this multi-ethnic, multicultural vision, not just in heaven, but on earth as it is in heaven. God bless you and aloha. This time in America is an opportunity for self-reflection and change, not just for others, but for all of us. We have a long history that needs to be made right as we all go forward. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Normally, we meet Sundays at our Ko'olau campus or at the Vine in Kaka'ako. But for now, you can find the entire church service streamed online on the church website, fpchawaii.org. For our virtual church service, click the online church box at our regular church service times. Sunday morning at 8, 9.30, and 11.11, and Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. Be sure to check your email for links to sermons, church news and updates, daily devotionals, and our details on the reopening of First Pres. If you have any questions or needs at all, you can always reach the church through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Pres, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2020 and produced by the media ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.